I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings 15. As we look together uh, today at verses 24 through 34, we've been going through the book of 1 Kings. And we are going to see the sad end of a house that is a family, an entire line cut off, the line of Jeroboam, a man who had been raised up by God, who had had great promises given to him, and who had been told, all you need to do is this, and yet he had not, he had not listened to the Lord's admonition. And instead of blessings, he received curses. And we'll see what happened to, uh, to his offspring and indeed to all of his descendants. But before we turn to uh, the word of the Lord, let's go to the Lord who spoke to Jeroboam and speaks to us as well. God, our gracious Father, Lord, we do thank you for your word. And we pray now, Lord, that we would heed its instruction. We know it wasn't simply designed for your people Israel long ago. It was designed for all of your people in every age and every place, including here in Fayetteville in 2023, right now. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand it. I pray you would help me to divide it. I can't hope to do so without your power within me. Lord, help me to divide your word aright and to apply it correctly to your people. Let me say nothing that goes against your instruction. And let us all, Lord, have a, a reverent awe when we hear your word. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. 1 Kings 15, I'm going to start with verse 24 and read through to the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. So Asa rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father. Then Jehoshaphat, his son, reigned in his place. Now Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, became king over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. And he reigned over Israel two years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And he walked in the way of his father and in his sin by which he had made Israel sin. Then Baasha, the son of Ahijah of the house of Issachar, conspired against him. And Baasha killed him at Gibeathon, which belonged to the Philistines, which Nadab and all Israel laid, uh, laid siege to Gibeathon. Baasha killed him in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, and he reigned in his place. And it was so when he became king that he killed all the house of Jeroboam. He did not leave to Jeroboam anyone that breathed until he had destroyed him according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken by his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. Because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he had sinned, and by which he had made Israel to sin, because of his provocation with which he had provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger. Now the rest of the acts of Nadab and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And there was war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel, all their days. In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Baasha, the son of Ahijah, became king over all Israel in Tirzah and reigned 24 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin by which he made Israel sin. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. One of the great gifts that I was given as a, as a new Christian was uh, I, I, I was listening to the radio one day, and uh, I heard uh, an ad for something called the C.S. Lewis Institute, and they, they talked about theological instruction for laymen. And so uh, I had become a new Christian. I was reading the Bible, and to tell the truth, because I didn't have any Christian background, I, I really often I couldn't make heads or tails of it. And so I seized the opportunity to start taking these evening courses while I was working. 
uh, in the evenings and on the weekends we would meet and we'd have instruction. One of the best courses that I took was on the books of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. It was a wonderful course because I have to admit that the first time I read First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, when I was going through my first run through the Bible, um, I couldn't really make heads or tails of it. It was terribly confusing because here you have the reign, and I didn't really understand the division. The, the real point was I didn't understand the division of the two kingdoms too well. So you have to remember that as we are reading through this book, we have two different kingdoms, two different sets of kings being described. There are the, there's the southern kingdom of Judah, which is ruled by the descendants of David. And then to the north, you have the northern breakaway kingdom of Israel, which was ruled by several different families. And then to add to all of the difficulty, the, the stories are often dischronologized. That's because the reigns of the, uh, the, the kings in the south and the north were not coterminous. In other words, for instance, Asa reigns for 41 years, but most of the kings of Israel didn't reign nearly as long as that. So, for instance, in verse 24 here, we see uh, the beginning, uh, or rather we, uh, we start in verse 24 with the, the death of Asa, king of Judah. He reigned for 41 years, and then he is succeeded by his son Jehoshaphat. But in verse 25... We go back in time from that point. We go back in time to the second year of Asa's reign to learn about how Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, became king of Israel but only reigned for two years before he was assassinated by, by Baasha. Now, one of the things that we're going to see as we continue on in the, in the book of First Kings is that the only good kings are the kings in Judah. Not all the kings of Judah, obviously, were good kings. Unfortunately, they had quite a few bad kings as well. But we will notice, or I hope you will notice, that the good kings tend to reign longer than the bad kings. So, for instance, during the 41 years of Asa, uh, during his reign in Judah, they have no less than eight kings in the northern kingdom. Uh, we will see the reign of Jeroboam, then his son Nadab, and then the end of his line, and then Baasha, Elah, Zimri, Tibni, Omri, and then finally uh, the kind of the gold standard for bad kings, Ahab and his, uh, his wife Jezebel. So uh, now, it, it, what, what sparked this quick succession of, of kings in Israel? Why did they have all these, these bad kings coming up and you know, quickly being removed? Why is it Nadab only reigns two years and then is assassinated? Uh, was it just bad luck? Did they... Were they very bad at picking bodyguards or something? Was it, uh, you know, if they'd had a, a better agency, uh, you know, picking their guards for them, would they have reigned for longer or something like that? Well, no, the reason there's this quick and awful succession of kings is because of the apostasy of those kings and the kingdom that they ruled over. It was because they had thrown away God. Jeroboam is literally told by a prophet, you have cast me behind your back. You have, I've made all these promises to you. I gave you the kingdom, and you have thrown me away. And they're turning away from God and his commandments and then expecting blessings when they had been promised that this thing that they were doing would only result in death is the reason why you have this succession. They had been warned 
And it wasn't just in their lifetimes that they were warned. Hundreds of years before, you remember Moses had been standing with the people in the plains of Moab. They'd been about to cross over the Jordan River into the promised land. They'd been released from Egypt. There they had seen a tyrant overthrown by God's power, his army crushed by the waters of the Red Sea. They had been watched over by their king. And then when they had apostatized and turned against God and doubted his word, They'd seen an entire generation fall in the wilderness. Here they are on the very verge of the promised land. And at that point in Deuteronomy 30, Moses preaches this to them, starting in Deuteronomy verse thir- uh, chapter 30, verse 15. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days, and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. Now the Lord is always very clear in his instruction to his people and to the kings of Israel. He sets before them life and death, and he says, In essence, this isn't hard, okay? In my one hand, over here, I have death. And in this hand, I have life. And he even tells us, as though we're moron children, choose life. But do they? And the answer is no. And, you know, it's not like God doesn't continually reinforce those messages. He again and again and again reinforced this message. If you follow me, if you love me, if you're faithful to me, if you do what I command by my power, I will watch over you. I will keep you. I will bless you. But he, no, they don't. You remember God had sent a prophet to Jeroboam, even while Solomon was ruling, and he had told him he was going to give him ten tribes. He was going to give him the northern kingdom. He was going to exalt him. And why was he going to do this? Precisely because Solomon and the people of Judah had begun to worship false gods. I, the God of the universe, the only God, I'm giving you this great gift. I'm going to put it into your hands, and all you have to do is be faithful to me. He told Jeroboam, then it shall be if you heed all that I command you, walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight to keep my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, that I will be with you and build for you an enduring house as I built for David and will give Israel to you. But he didn't. He did exactly what Solomon had done. In fact, he did worse. At least Solomon didn't, you know, destroy, although he had added all of these these places of false worship and so on. He hadn't torn down the temple and created false worship of the true God. Jeroboam had created this idolatrous, awful worship of, of supposedly the true God, abandoning all of his commandments. Why had he done that? Well, the answer is simple. It's because the natural man's heart 
without the Spirit of God dwelling within it, the unregenerate heart is inclined towards evil and never believes the promises or heeds the threatenings of God. The Bible tells us that there is nothing good that ever comes by sinning. Not once, not twice, but continually. Romans 6.23, for instance, says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But the natural man says, <laughs> I'm going to prove both of those wrong. I'm going to prove, and I know I can do it, that the wages of sin is happiness. And that the gift of eternal life is me striving to do whatever I want, not receiving the gift of eternal life by grace from the hand of God. God sets before people again and again life and death, and we snatch death out of his hand every single time unless we've been given the grace to believe. I, I don't know this simply because the word tells me. I know it from my own experience in my life. I, I know that I would have chosen death consistently going on from my childhood. As a child, again and again, my parents would offer me something good if I behaved, they would dangle the carrot in front of me, and they would warn at the same time, they would also, you know, reinforce the stick, they would warn that terrible things would happen if I didn't behave. So for instance, in my graduation from middle school, it was coming up, and they said, look, and I was always and, I was a, I was a conjunction as a child, but uh, in any event, they would say, look, and if, if you, if you simply do what's right at your graduation. Just, you know, accept the certificate, go through the ceremony. 45 minutes, then we're done. We'll go to Benihana, and we'll give you a gift, a big present. All you have to do is be good at the graduation ceremony. Simple, right? Couldn't do it. Not, not capable of doing it. I single-handedly, no, actually I had, I had help from a couple of other boys, but we ruined the graduation ceremony. The high point of the graduation ceremony was supposed to be a candle lighting. A nun had a, uh, I was a Catholic school, uh, had, a, had a taper, and they would come up and take, as their names were called, they would come and they would take the taper, and they were supposed to go up and they were supposed to touch it to a candle, and then it would be beautiful. You would have all these candles up there on the altar, burning to show that these were burning lights going out into the world. And, and what we did before the ceremony was we <coughs> gobbed on all of the wicks. So one by one, the nun gave these kids the tapers, and they walked up, and they went, they sizzled a little, and then went out, one by one. And the nun, I'm not joking, by the time she'd gotten to like taper five, was crying. <laughs> she was handing them these things, and they were going out. The principal, and because when the second one had gone out, I couldn't control myself any longer. I thought it was the funniest thing on earth, and I just cracked up. You know, I'm, I'm dying of laughter. And the principal was standing there, and I know he's imagining my neck. He's got the program, and he's twisting it, and his eyes are closed, and his teeth are gritted, and he's red. And my parents, my, I, I, I'm laughing, and then I look over, and I see my father's face, and there are literally daggers coming out of his eyes towards me because everybody in the room, everybody at that point knew that I was the ringleader, that this whole abomination... Um, that went on to the last candle. I can't believe they didn't stop it. But there it was. And so at the end of the service, uh, uh, the graduation, my father clamped my neck in his hand and frog-marched me out to the car 
threw me in the back, and I was, I didn't go to Benihana. I, I actually had the audacity to ask, though, are we going to the restaurant? <laughs> yeah, no, we're not going to the restaurant. Um, I humiliated them, and uh, as a result, I spent the summer months between 8th and ninth grade grounded until they got sick of holding me in the house. It was, I, but why would I do that? They set before me blessings, and it was, it was so simple. It was so simple. I could not do it. I had to ruin it. I had to do it at the expense of everybody else. I had to choose the way of folly, the way of death, the way of sin. And I kept doing that. I kept doing that. Now, not believing the promises of your parents in such a simple situation like that is stupid. And it's a violation of the fourth commandment. It's not honoring your your parents. And remember the commandment says, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. And if you don't do that, the corollary, (laughs) the days that you'll live in the land are going to be short. And generally speaking, that is something that the, the Lord has honored. That those who do honor their parents, they tend to live longer. We'll see that in the, in the southern kingdom, in Judah. And those who don't, they have quick, nasty, brutish lives. So it's stupid not to believe your parents, but it's even worse when you're not believing the promises of God. And you're going on not to violate the fourth commandment, but the first commandment, the second commandment, and the third commandment. That's monumentally foolish. But Jeroboam did it. So we saw in in chapter 14 how when his son Abijah got sick, Jeroboam had sent his wife to the prophet Ahijah to inquire whether he would recover, but she had received the news that he would die. And this was all because, and the Lord tells him straight out, he says, because you have done more evil than all who were before you, for you have gone and made for yourself other gods and molded images to provoke me to anger, And have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam. And will cut off from Jeroboam every male in Israel, bond and free. I will take away the remnant of the house of Jeroboam as one takes away refuse until it is all gone. The dog shall eat whatever belongs to Jeroboam and dies in the city. And the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field. For the Lord has spoken. And he also warned that not just the king's apostasy would have terrible consequences. The apostasy of the people of the nation of Israel would have terrible consequences as well. The Lord would strike them as a reed is shaken in the water. He will uproot Israel from this good land which he gave to their fathers and will scatter them beyond the river because they have made their wooden images provoking the Lord to anger and he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam who sinned and made Israel sin. And then to reinforce that, that prophecy was confirmed the moment that the wife of Jeroboam stepped on the threshold of the house. Indeed, as the prophet Ahijah had said, the child died. And this was the only one of Jeroboam's descendants who was buried and honored by the people because in him something good was found. And it was a mercy to him that he died and didn't have to grow up in that household. Yet with all of that, Jeroboam still did not depart from evil. And neither did his son Nadab. And why? When, when you know you can't win in a struggle against God, why would you do it? it it's, it's just that insane rebellion that says, I will not serve God even if it destroys me. Now, who was the first person who said, 
I will not serve God even if it destroys me. The answer, brothers and sisters, is it wasn't a man. It was an angel. His name is Satan. He would not serve God, even though in a conflict. I mean, Satan is not wise, but he's not stupid. He knew he could not beat the Lord of the universe, and yet his insane pride caused him to rebel. Why did our first parents rebel in the garden and doubt God? It makes no sense. They had everything they had need of. There was only one tree they couldn't eat from, and they decided to take fruit from that tree. It's the inclination, unfortunately, of prideful hearts. Ripping the Bible to shreds and attempting to find happiness, doing exactly the things that God says will produce death, will produce hardship and sorrow and short lives, it never works. And we can see that in our, in our society today, though. I mean, we may look back on Jeroboam and Nadab and men back then and say, that's what colossal stupidity. When they saw the consequences of their sin again and again, why did they continue on in it? Well, brothers and sisters, why do we continue on in it in our own society today? The consequences of our sin are not being hidden. They're terrible. They're all over the place. We've never been as miserable as we are today. By every poll, we are the most miserable generation in America's history. We've never been as unsuccessful at building families, at raising children. And yet, what do we do? We keep doubling down on the disobedience. It's like we've gone to the casino, we've taken our life savings with us, okay? And we go up to a roulette wheel. And on this roulette wheel, normally you remember on the roulette wheel, well, I hope m most of you don't spend most of your time in casinos, so I'll <laughs> explain the roulette wheel. There's, there's black and red numbers, odd and even, right? Going around and you put the ball and you try to guess, you know, most people will try to guess black or, or red or odd or even and so on. Well, on this roulette wheel, it's all red and all even. And so what do we do? We bet black. <sighs> black didn't come up. Odd. Didn't come up. Black. Odd. Black. Odd. Black. Black. And we keep doing that. And gradually, when we look at our savings, they're all gone. We, we've, we've gotten rid of our inheritance. Doesn't matter. Get the kids' inheritance. Put that on the table. Black, odd, black, odd, black. All right, then. Grandchildren, put that on the table. We keep doing that again and again. Our disobedience goes on and on and on. We lose all our money. We rob our kids. Then we rob our grandkids, and we just keep going. They did that in the northern kingdom until finally the Assyrians came in, just as God said would happen, and removed them. Now, the other thing to note, though, is that when a people go astray in this way, when they turn their back on God, when they decide we hate God, we're not going to obey him, certain other things tend to happen. First, there is no way that the people in the northern kingdom couldn't see that the people of the southern kingdom, their neighbors, their brothers, okay, who they were related to ethnically, linguistically, religiously, there was no way that they could not see that the people in the southern kingdom under Asa were happier. They must have seen that. And yet, and yet they did not repent and they didn't return to worshiping at the temple and serving the king who was a descendant of David. Instead, they keep serving all of these, these petty, vile kings. And what do they do? They see that the southern kingdom is doing better 
they fight against it. They try to tear it down. Now, that's nothing new as well. Abel sacrifices, you remember, in the book of Genesis, according to God's instructions. He takes a lamb from his flock, and he sacrifices it according to the way God told him, this is how you'll worship me. Now, that blood sacrifice pointed forward, of course, that, that lamb there, the first lamb that was sacrificed by Abel, still pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. It was the beginning of that wonderful process by which the Lord's people worshipped, looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. And God is pleased by this. He smells the, the odor of the, uh, the, the sacrifices that's burning on the altar, and it pleases him because he knows Abel loves him, and he knows that Abel loves him because he's followed his commandments. And he's pleased. Cain does not do what the Lord says, and the Lord is not pleased. So what does Cain do? Cain says, I should have done what my brother did. Lord, forgive me. I No, of course he doesn't do that. It's not what the word says. It, it, no, he says, it's not fair. It's not right that the Lord loves him and he's getting blessings. I should be able to do what I want to do and get blessings. So he kills Abel. He kills him. And that's the way it's been since then. The line of Cain has always hated the line of Seth, the line that worships the Lord. And they've desired to kill them. They hate them. They, they hate their prosperity. They hate the blessings that they have. Now, I watch as people I went to school with. I grew up in, a, in uh, New Jersey in an area where I, I'd never heard the gospel. There, there, were, there was one, maybe two evangelical churches in town, and everybody thought they were crazy. I mean, literally, they, they, you know, the, oh, they're Bible thumpers. No, I didn't even know what that meant, but, you know, okay, I know they're crazy. That's, that's all I know about them. They've got, you know, this Jesus saves stuff, and that's crazy. But I watch as the people I went to school with there on social media, they, they talk about their, and they're quite open about it, even though they don't recognize it. They talk about their misery. They talk about their depression. They talk about the drugs that they're taking in order to try to make them happy. You see them moving from divorce to divorce or just into loneliness. I, I, I've actually, I watch as people I grew up with literally hid from the rest of the world during the COVID crisis in their apartments and didn't come out. Were afraid to see people and then didn't, and they're still to this day scared silly of people. It is heartbreaking to watch as this is happening, but the bizarre thing is if you ask these people, what is the problem in America and what is the problem in their life? What, what is the biggest problem? They will say, it's all these crazy Christians. It's people like me and, and, and you. We're the problem. If we didn't exist, everything would be fine. Then they'd be happy. It's Cain's answer. Is it really, though? Are we really the problem? If, if I die, that'll make you happy for the rest of your life? Really? No. But another thing to note here, aside from the fact that, you know, you tend to hate the people who are following God when you're in rebellion to God, is that once you turn away from God, you also tend to be a hater and betrayer of your fellow man as well. 
Paul sums it up very well in Romans 1, 18 through 32. He talks about how they become, uh, because they did not like to retain God in their uh, knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do the things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual morality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, and so on. One of the results of that is that they will kill one another in order to get ahead. And that's precisely what happens to Nadab. Now think about this. Nadab attempts to recapture a Levite city. Most of the Levites had left the northern kingdom by that time and had gone down to the southern kingdom. And uh, the Philistines had swooped in and and, and grabbed this city, Gibeathon, uh, in the region of Dan. And it's at that moment when he is attempting to take back this city for his nation that Baasha betrays Nadab and assassinates him. And Baasha doesn't just assassinate Nadab, he wipes out his entire line so he has no descendants. The Hebrew actually makes it clear. He doesn't just, normally the, uh, when, when kings overthrew other kings, they didn't want their sons to come and take revenge or overthrow them later on, so they would kill all the male relatives. In this case, Baasha assassinates all of his descendants, but it's in keeping with the prophecy of the Lord. But how do the people of the northern kingdom react after Baasha kills the lawful king who's waging war for them and so on? They make him king. Well, that's okay. He's he's got it. And despite that, despite the fact that all the prophecies sent by God had come to pass and idolatry had led to the destruction of the house of Jeroboam, Baasha also, we read, did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin by which he had made his real sin. Do you see how self-destructive sin is? I mean... When I sinned at that graduation ceremony, I hurt a lot of people. Sin does that. Sin, if you're a sinner, you will hurt people around you constantly. You'll deny you're doing it. I did that. It wasn't until my eyes were opened to see the darkness in my heart that I realized how many people I had hurt over and over and over again out of selfishness. But the person you hurt the most is you. The person who you rob of blessings is you again and again. And unfortunately, Baasha, he he sees what happened to Jeroboam. He sees what happened to Nadab. He sees what's happening to the nation, but he continues on in it. There's the old saying that madness is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different outcome, but that's what these kings will do. They will continue to do the same thing, but expect that suddenly blessings will come from it, just as we will continue on in a sin that has never brought us any real lasting contentment or happiness, and then think someday, someday it'll happen. It's like the addict who's chasing, ever chasing that first high that they had, and living with diminished returns and a life that's falling apart, but still will not turn away from the idol, the drug that is literally destroying them. But the question today, though, well, that's too bad for Nadab. It's too bad for Jeroboam. It's too bad for Baasha. What will we learn from their example? Will we learn what we're, from what we're reading here? When a prophet comes to not, not Nadab or, or, you know, Baasha or Jeroboam, but when a prophet comes to us and tells us to choose life, When a prophet comes to us and says, follow the Lord's anointed king, Jesus Christ, the son of God, second person of the triune Godhead, king of kings, Lord of lords, will we hear him? And will we repent? 
Will we turn away from the things that are destroying us? Those, those actions, those, those idols, those sins that are bringing death into our life and into the life of others. The northern kings didn't. And Phil Riken uh, says rightly, the northern kings show us what happens to a person, a family, or a society that turns its back on God. Their bad example invites us to choose whether we want to live with Christ or without him. You see what happens to, to individuals and nations without Christ. Will you live without him? If you will, then, then James Dobson, Dr. James Dobson, I grew up uh, in the Christian faith that is listening to him on the radio on WAVA 105.1. Uh, but he, he said this, history teaches that the Holy One of Israel cannot and will not withhold judgment from those who flaunt the moral code of the universe. I don't know how or when his wrath will befall those who wallow in evil, but scripture assures us that it will come. And I have to tell you, in my 53 years here on this planet, that's what I've seen over and over and over and over and over again. If you turn to sin, if you reject Christ, if you wallow in it, you may go on for a time, but eventually it will be your undoing. And your life in the meantime will not be happy. You remember Jesus came to his people and he gave them the, the parable of the vineyard. And that parable was, the, you know, the Lord planted a vineyard. He's the good king. And he gave it to his people. And he said, you know, go enjoy its blessings. And then he came and he said, I, I, I desire, desire a, a share of the, of the vineyard. He wanted their worship. He deserved their worship, but they wouldn't give it to him. So they killed the messengers, that is the prophets, he said. Then finally, the king says, of course, in the parable that Jesus is saying, I'll send my son, they'll respect him. But they say, ah, here's the son. Let's kill him and take the inheritance for ourselves. And that's exactly what they do. And then Jesus asks the people who are hearing this, what will that king do? And they're like, oh, well, that's easy. You know, he's going to send an army and destroy them, of course. And what they didn't see was, here's the king's son, who's been sent to offer them life after they had destroyed all the prophets who had gone before him, including John the Baptist, the forerunner. And yet they were rejecting him, gnashing their teeth at him, hating him, who was bringing them life. How often has it been the case that, and the sad thing is, covenant kids have come into a place where they are offered life and they've gnashed their teeth against it. Said, oh, I hate this. If I could just get back to my sins, everything would be great. Mom and Dad, I hate you for dragging me away. From, you know, the, watch it all the time. Or a husband whose wife is so zealous for his soul, who doesn't want to spend eternity without him, who knows where he's going. She brings him to worship. And I watch these guys, and they're like, oh. It's like literally every few moments a deacon's coming up and sticking a battery skewer on That's the reaction, you know. It's, oh, physical pain. I can't wait to get out of here. All these offers of life. Oh. I mean, we can say to ourselves, what foolishness. But how often does the devil come to us with a honeyed offer of sin? And incidentally, he never comes to us with, you know, poison and vinegar and says, hey, eat this. <laughs> no, he brings us something sweet and delightsome. It smells so good. Oh, that is tempting. Hmm. How often do we say, I know the wages of sin is death. 
not this time, no. I, okay, I'll take it. So we eat the, the white queen's Turkish delight. <laughs> and it leaves us emptier and poisoned and sick to our stomachs. And if we are alive in Christ, it end, we end up feeling that horrific guilt. Do you know the, the, you know the feeling of guilt after you know you've sinned? That weighs you down? It's in that moment, what should we do? Turn to Christ. Flee to him like the, the prodigal. Go back and, and say, I have sinned. I'm sorry, that was foolish. I don't know what possessed me to go back to the ways of death and darkness. Please, Lord, forgive. And know that we have that forgiveness free and full. No one who comes to him by faith and asks for that forgiveness has ever been denied. And so I, I tell you this, if you have not yet fled to Christ, if you've not yet gotten rid of all these stupid idols that will destroy you and make your life so, so miserable in the lives of the people around you, flee to him. Flee to Christ. And if you find yourself trapped in repeated sins, go to him again. And say, free me from the idolatry that I've embraced. Free me from believing that, that my sins will ever bring me good things. Repent of them. Bury them. Have nothing to do with them anymore. Take up your cross. Die to self. And walk with him. I would beg you to do that for your own sake. Let's go before the Lord now. God, our gracious Father, Lord, I admit I have, I have labored to, to bring the iniquity of sin home to your people. But I pray, Lord, that you would bring it home to me. I need, Lord, to know uh, the wickedness and the, the foolishness of sin and how it never brings goodness into, into my life. Lord, you have been so merciful to us. You have set before us life again and again and again. I pray, Lord, that those who have been stubbornly resisting, just as Jeroboam and his descendants stubbornly resisted, don't do it anymore. But they see what happens to households and nations and individuals who choose sin and the way of sin. There is no happiness to it. There is no contentment, only, only anger and, and discontent and grumbling and hatred and and all of the things that flow out of that. Help us, O oh Lord, to be a people who, because we have a new principle of life in our hearts, choose life, choose what's good, and follow you for the rest of our days. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. And amen.